Dumb Book Lovers, back for another Adapted, where we dissect books that have been turned into movies, and today we travel all the way to England, once again in our episode 5, as we tackle Never Let Me Go. It's an alternate universe, it's science fiction, but it's really human emotion. Let's talk about it. This is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we have the lovely Marissa Serafini. Hello, everyone. And I'm Phil Svitek, and uh, per Marissa's request, a book and a movie that she has long loved, she's never let go, it is the book, (laughs) Never Let Me Go. Yes, I'm really excited to talk about this book, this film. I've said it in the past years of since this book and movie has come out I was like no it's a beautiful film that no one has watched and I wish more people did because I just need more people in the world that I can talk to about this book and the movie so I love how this show adapted can create those opportunities so I can talk about the things I love there you go and hopefully uh, you guys listening watching whatever it may be participate you know, after all, that's what this is all about. In Absolutely. fact, uh, you can download our rundown in the description box. Uh, we encourage you, if you have not read the book or seen the movie, to do both. Uh, this is going to be very spoiler-filled for both. Um, nonetheless, uh, we enjoy the conversation, so please, please join in, whenever that may be, now or in the future. doesn't matter. That's yeah. the beauty of uh, online, on-demand content. Um, so, once again, it's Never Let Me Go, uh, originally by Kazao... Kazuo? Kazuo Ishiguro. There you go. By the way, British author. Yes, British author. I mean, he was born in Japan, but was raised in in England. So he, he definitely has the, the British culture and that type of lifestyle um, more than his Japanese background. But And this book is, you know, with the whole English backdrop to it, I... I feel like it's one of those stories that doesn't really matter where in the world it takes place because it's such a universal type of theme that goes on in this book. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, It is, certainly. Um, However, you know, one of the things I appreciate is that he says uh, he has kind of a weird advantage because he looks, he's British, but he looks at it through a different lens because he was raised Japanese by his parents. They didn't know how long they'd be in Britain for and they ended up quite a long time, uh, meaning basically the rest of his life. Right, and it's not the first time we've actually talked about an author who kind of has that same background. Rudyard Kipling, he was yeah. born, you know, in a different, in, you know, a southeastern country, but he was raised in in England. So he, we, this isn't the first time we've seen an author who, just because of his background, does like doesn't necessarily create or mean that like he can talk um or write very fluently about another type of culture yeah and you know what, what's so amazing is that the, the themes that we're going to talk about are so universal and yet the specifics under which the context for all of it takes place is so specific i mean this book um it's very anecdotal. It's very diary stream of thought for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's times he's describing big events. There's times, and when I say he, I mean the author, but the narrator is, of course, Kathy, who's a female. Um, so it's a, it, it, he, the specifics he, she, I'll, I'll use she since right. I'll use the 
Kathy, the narrator. She is the main narrator and the main voice. This whole book is written in a first-person perspective, so yeah. yes. But very descriptive, very detailed, mm-hmm. uh, very pinpointed, uh, so I appreciate that. Absolutely, and it wasn't really disjointed. It was a fairly linear type of narration from a person's memoir, memory and whatnot. I mean, every once in a while, probably like maybe once every 50 pages or so, there'll be a small break where Kathy is telling the story and it reminds the the reader that they're in this specific time period. But um, it, it takes us back to the present for maybe one second, and then she keeps going back to the memory. Yeah, um, and that that seems to be so. At this point, he's written eight books, um, and you know that seems to be a thing that he does play with is this idea of memory. In fact, he talks about it a lot. Um, here's a here's a direct quote from him. Um, and this is actually in speaking about the book as well. So, From Ishigura. Yes, so this ties in uh, duly. I've always liked the texture of memory. I like it that a scene pulled from the narrator's memory is blurred at the edges, layered with all sorts of emotion and open to manipulation. You're not just telling the reader this and this happened. You're also raising questions like, why has she remembered this event just at this point? How does she feel about it? And when she says she can't remember very precisely what happened, uh, but she'll tell us anyway, well, how much do we trust her and so on. I love all the subtle things you can do when you tell a story through someone's memories. I like that because I feel like memories are kind of like dreams. There's no really like beginning or end, you're just kind of thrown in the middle and you just go from there. And I like those moments of that self-realization during the narration, like uh, looking back, there'd be moments where she actually says, looking back at it, I wonder why that happened or maybe we should have done something during that moment. Uh, like there's there's those moments of self-awareness that this is a memory that she's talking about. And that retrospection that she has is actually f- kind of fascinating because it makes her ponder her past decisions that maybe could have affected her present her present life in a strange way it's autobiographical it is in, yeah. if these events had you know if there was this alternate universe um that actually existed yeah in a way i mean uh, and i like that too because you're you're going just really this is based off of one person and when you tell only one side of a story and but she's talking about other people as a reader, maybe sometimes you'll raise those questions, but what were Ruth's memories? Did she see it the exact same way? Or what were Tommy's memories? No. Did he see it the, the, that same way? What really happened if we're only getting one side of a story? And this doesn't spoil it in any way. Um, those of you who love the show will know that, you know, The Prestige was a book that sort of did dive into that, where they gave a couple of diary entries from one perspective, and then, conversely, you got it from the other perspective. Mm-hmm. This is solely you're getting it from one perspective. Um, but also, let's let's take a quick step back also. Um, as far as we keep mentioning that it's an alternate universe. The reason why it's an alternate universe is not because... And he didn't want this. He didn't want flying cars and futuristic whatever. He just wanted simplicity. But the simplicity in the alternate is... Uh, the fact that they're clones yes with one sole purpose which is to continue uh, which is essentially to be spare parts for he- for human beings and their diseases yeah I mean they're clones who were com- completely genetically created to, um, to provide and harvest organs for other people yeah. to continue the life expectancy of the human race 
that's it. And when you, you sort of what's so haunting about that is that it plays so far in the background of both, you know, we'll talk about the movie, but both the movie and the book, that that's what makes it frightening um, because what you're really reading, yeah, it, it does seem like an autobiography. It does feel like an actual person. And yet, in the eyes of the society, not really. They're not. They're not considered as real people. They're not treated as real people, even though this particular generation that they were in particular place, such as Hailsham, where they were being raised, they, they were only raised a certain way and to behave and look at the world a certain way through more like a foggy lens com- compared to a complete clear vision of what the world really is. And it's sad because you feel for these people, and they are people, essentially, at the end of the day. They are, yes, they're clones, but I think that's the whole message of, and the theme of the the book, too, not to jump too far ahead. Like, what makes you human and what makes you just, you know, scientific clones? Yeah, and that's, uh, it, it seems to be a theme throughout his books. Um, I've not personally read any of his other works, but um, he's got yeah, very, very Remains well respected. Day, yeah, yeah, which is another book that he, that first got him critical acclaim as a writer. Absolutely. And they all overall sort of end on this sentiment of, uh, I don't want to say they just end somewhere, but it's almost, you're kind of left picking up the pieces as a reader, and what does this mean? And so for him, uh, the development is actually quite interesting. Uh, As he says, it took him about 15 years, and he thought about an odd group of students in the English countryside. Um, He was never sure of who these people were. He just, you know, they lived in farmhouses and so forth. Um, and then one day he was actually listening to the radio and, uh, there was, they were talking about advances in biotechnology and, you know, he listened and that formed the framework under which these students would be a part of, which makes total sense. I mean, that's, you right. can see that hundred percent as far as translating. Yeah. And you can, you definitely get those themes. You have the children and these three particular kids that were really focusing on growing up together in a certain environment surrounded by other different outside environments, like such as farmland, such as um, agriculture, and and just the society itself with the biotech engineering. Yeah. Um, you know, one, one of the things that's interesting is how still relevant this sort of debate is, because, uh, so what I mean... Um, Sometimes my mind works faster than, than <laughs> I speak. I apologize for this. Um, so the title, Never Let Me Go, um, is from a song. And yes. the nice part, I really like the part where, especially in the book, she sort of describes, she understands that what she thinks the song is about, she knows the song's not about that, but the beauty is that she can interpret it whatever way she wants. And for her, it's basically the ability to have children and so forth. Yes. Um, and it's interesting because yeah, not the sp- this doesn't spoil it in any sort of way. But Blade Runner, uh, twenty forty nine, tackles that sort of same issue about um, you know clones essentially not being able to replicate, and that's mm-hmm. what separates them from human beings and clones. Right, and I think that's also relevant to why we're talking about it now because there are still a lot of stories and different different stories out there that kind of touch on the same thing but in different ways like such as Blade Runner such as this and I like that in this book that we actually go back to we see someone else's perspective on this song too we, we get uh, Madam's perspective and I find it very interesting how 
we we see Kathy growing up and always like being attached to this particular tape and uh, Judy Bridgewater and and the song, and it had such a deep sentimental feeling for her. It's kind of sad. And then we get Madam's perspective of that also that sad realization that Kathy will never have children, um, and nor should she like want or or need children it's it's just two different perspectives we had a child's perspective and then an adult's perspective on the same situation and it makes it just really sad yeah and what's so intriguing especially when you read it for um you're really left to pick up the pieces as you go along like it works on two ways one you know um as kathy's telling the story she's not gonna she knows what she's saying so she's not gonna just tell you to catch you up because she knows it, it wouldn't make sense or conversely there's elements that she isn't aware of so she's not going to be able to tell the reader mm-hmm. um and so it, it the, the way the pieces fall together is quite interesting because even from the opening line i'm a carer mm-hmm. you're like wait what what's a carer what the? You know? yeah i've exactly. never heard of that profession exactly and it's and i think that the terminology in and this book is really interesting, too, because it's very direct, but it's also very ambiguous at the same time. Uh, like, I find that this book, like, reveals a little bit information, and then later on, you actually, it delves more into the deeper information of what it really is. So, like, slowly but surely, you learn more information that is actually relevant to what you need to know that puts the whole puzzle piece together into one big picture. And I like that. It, and it wasn't to the point where, like, what is this? I don't understand. It wasn't, like, to a point of frustration. It was just a point of, oh, you're slowly realizing as you're going along. And, and then it's that slow burn of everything starting to make sense. Yeah, absolutely. The, for me... You know, um, one of the things I didn't fully love is that we move through events pretty quickly and we never really slow down on a particular event. Very rarely did we do that, um, which I, I get makes sense because, you know, if you're retelling something from memory, you're not going to remember line by line. Marissa said this. Phil mm-hmm. said that. Marissa said this. So, you know, they just have very bits and pieces and then they describe like Phil and Marissa overall talked about the book and then they talked about this. So it's just kind of moments that continue on. Um which is kind of interesting because then for the movie, you obviously get to explore that and you have to take that moment and then expand it into an actual scene because you can't just be like, you know, they talked about this. You have right. to actually give them the words. Give them padding um, to fill out the, the full story or that particular moment. I enjoyed it. I've, I felt like there this book, the way it was written, there was a nice balance. It was like a three-part it's a three-act type of story. You, you had them as children at Hailsham. You had them as young adults in a cottage. And then you had them as adults being don- donors. Um, I thought it was very well organized. And uh, so each part of the book is very understandable of what's happening in their lives. Not, not once was I ever confused. Because in each part of those moments, there, there was like one or two situations we focused on a lot. But that was really all you need. Yeah. Um, yeah, and <clears throat> overall, you can kind of say, I mean, it's the age-old thing, um, you know, youth, middle age, and then old age, right? Mm-hmm. So three, like, yes, it's story-wise makes sense because, you know, three parts of a narrative, but beginning, middle, and end, but also just like life, you have a beginning, middle, and end. Exactly. Um, and that's what truly, it, 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 it's twofold. It's essentially saying, like, life is love, mm. you know, uh, to me, in essence, and that's how, like, yes, we're all on this earth for a finite time, 
For some people, in this case, it could be hundreds of years. In the case of these guys, you know, if they make it to their mid-20s, they're good. <laughs> yeah, they're lucky, honestly. Um, the the story, the narration, like, Kathy is 31 by the time she's starting to delve back into her memories. And if you made it to your middle 30s, you're, you're super lucky because um, it's usually by the, their 20s to 30s is when the, they start their donations. So, And even at death at the age of 30 is super young. And, and I find, like, the, the whole thing, while reading this, I, I feel like the way they were raised, raised in Hailsham and why the, 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 t- the teachers to the student relationship was so vague and why they didn't delve on a lot of important information, I think it was that ignorance is bliss. Which, but the interesting part to me is sort of the unspoken thing of this. That's literally what happens in life. We get taught these things, but we don't really fully talk about the importance of it all. Right. You know, especially like in the United States, and I don't know where you're listening or watching this. Could be another country. Maybe it's different for you. But there's a separation of church and state. Well, that's, you know, and and part of that, I don't necessarily mind that. That's not what I'm saying. But we never really fully then get to explore this stuff unless you specifically take like a philosophy class. But it's even then, it's just very introductory, and it's most of the times an elective. You know, and so in this regard, it's the same thing. It's like we don't really tackle the issues um, of of why we're here on Earth. Right. And I think that's uh, that was, you know, that voice of uh, realization, I guess you can say, as the reader was through the character of Miss Lucy. Um, She is the person who is well aware of the situation, but she's she's stuck in the middle because she's not allowed to tell the students what's really going on with their lives and what they should know and also just stuck of hey i i know all this information but i can't legally say it um and we 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 get those questions and she she has those line you've been told but you don't really understand Mm -hmm. and and i think that goes with the whole ignorance is bliss they only know like the subsurf the the superficial um information but not the real reasoning behind it and especially when it goes to the whole tape when kathy is imagining a woman holding her baby close to her but then we had the madam's perspective of that tape as like that sad realization that kathy will never have children like that's that's the extra reason that makes everything so there's the ignorance from kathy but then there's the actual true information from the madam well you know to an extent, I mean, what, what what's because to me, you know, there, there's a side to it. Like, there's parts of life we all know, but we don't want to be the uh, I don't know if this is the word for it alarmist personality that is. We're all doomed to die, and then it becomes the doom and gloom show. Mm-hmm. Which you know, obviously, she was much more tactful and respectful, and you know, certainly different circumstances. But I think that's also part of what it was hinting to because it's like okay well at the end of the day as a society you know we don't necessarily want people that just bring us down it's like for the most part we want to get we as human beings want to get through our day with the least minimal effort we you know Mm -hmm. deem for ourselves uh sufficient to get to our goals right it's like keep them happy enough so long as they can keep being productive (laughs) yeah so uh, definitely, definitely very interesting in that respect. And, um, you know, as far as one of the things that certainly was prevalent in both the book and the movie is the idea of uh, misconception. 
mm-hmm. you know, and, and the ideas of just spe- spe- speculation, you know, and what is true and what isn't. Um, and certainly as, you know, even as human beings, like the things that we consider fact, well, until it ha- all it takes is one other thing to happen to disprove a fact. Yeah. Yeah. So. Definitely misconception, and also the so there's misconception. There's also the uh, restriction of telling the full truth, which we see with the teachers not telling the students everything that they need to know, um, only just subsurface. But also, the, there were moments where they the teachers, in a way, like really controlled the environment of how much they wanted the students to know certain information, and even to the point of like their mentality. Um, there was a moment where they're talking about cigarette smoking is terrible for you. It is, you guys. It really is. But they they would impart like such a, a certain type of very strict mentality on certain things of this is how you're supposed to act. This is how you're supposed to look at this thing and view. You know, like it was a very controlled environment of what the teachers were trying to do to these children in a very controlled. Um, building. I mean, they're, they're all stuck in one physical location, too. So there was a lot of control um, of how they were raised and how they were mentally taught. Well, the, you know, unlike most dystopian uh, sci-fi, it wasn't for the reason of their own health and benefit. It was so that they didn't, like in the case of the smoking or anything else, so they didn't damage, let's say, their lungs. Mm-hmm. So when it came down to do the donation... <laughs> They're they were healthy. Com- they're completely healthy. But also, it's stuff like that that they didn't tell the students why sm- cigarette was ba- cigarette smoking was bad. It's just they know it's bad. So don't do this. Because really, the real truth is don't damage your body, don't damage your organs, so you can no. be healthy. And by the way, I think, you know, again, that, that, that's also a commentary on modern education is, uh, you know, I think a lot of people do need the why. Oftentimes, we don't necessarily get the why. It's just like, do this. Okay, well, why? Well, just because I said so. Yeah. So um, it and works on many, many levels. Yeah, and that's also the problem with the children, too, because they were just so trained like, I don't want to say animals, but they were so uh, they were so obedient in certain ways that they weren't actually trained to ask those questions and had those moments of realization of what they were actually doing. They were just sheep in a way. A hundred percent. Except, uh, only, you know, they weren't just being fattened up. <laughs> they had to, you know, sculpt them and so forth. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, sort of as hopefully you guys are listening to us, you get all the filmic elements, if you will. I mean, the fact that it takes place, the, the landscape alone is filmic. Yeah, you know? it's beautiful. So uh, you have that as possibilities. You have, of course, um, what, what I appreciate, Kathy, in both the movie and the the book, is an observer, right? And so essentially she becomes the lens. So when you translate it to movie form, mm-hmm. okay, basically the camera is Kathy. Yeah. Simple as that. It's told through her perspective of everything. Um, the movie, it starts off with her and it ends with her. Um, and it's her voiceover. So, like, it's definitely her her vision and her point of view of all these situations, which, like, translated very well. Um, just Surprisingly. In, just in narration, because sometimes it doesn't translate well, but it translated so well to the point where it wasn't confusing 
at all, and it was still it still retained that linear perspective of storytelling. Yeah, they did a really wonderful job. Uh, Alex Garland, he was a longtime friend of uh, Ishiguro. Ishiguro. And uh, so he, before the novel was even kind of complete, uh, without asking for rights and so forth, he wrote a 96-page script. And for the most part, what's what's unbelievable is that it pretty much was unchanged overall. Minor things here and there, of course, but... um, That rarely happens. Very rarely. So that's kudos to them. And, you know, uh, obviously things were changed and whatnot, but... um, you know, even the author agreed. He was like, listen, you know, he captured the the, the book well. And uh, he was actually very surprised because he was like, well, I didn't think it, you know, I don't worry about writing it in terms of a movie. And in fact, I did that so purposefully that I didn't think it could be a movie. And he did mm-hmm. it so well. He did. And I think the the physical environment and it's not really, I mean, it is set in a certain time place in the movie is in this is in the 70s and like late 60s 70s 80s in, in that time so technology is not the greatest as it is today but also in the book it takes place in the late 90s which isn't that far that long ago from the time we're talking about this story so it's it's kind of no, i don't want to say creepy but it is scary in a way knowing that this was not that long ago that well, this could have happened. What's interesting, you know, I mean, this, what I, I pre, even though it has a certain time stamp, it's really at the end of the day, timeless. Because, mm-hmm. you know, even in the movie, they made a point, they were like, listen, we're we're making a, um, a love story here. We're making a humanist story. So we're not going to have tall buildings and towers and this and that. We're like, we're just going to bear it down. And, and the sci-fi is the human side of it. Not anything else. Right. And I think the really the only technology you see in the film is the, the bracelets, the medical bracelets that they had to wear, and they had to check in and check out every single time they left a building. That's really the only technology you see. And that's not completely, like, that's not so far in advanced technology where it's um, not, you know, human or recognizable to us. Yeah. Or foreign to us. So I, I definitely appreciate that because there are movies that, definitely age themselves just by the technology they use um and even the art like they could have had little tablets for them to draw on things it was just regular old paintings right you know and i like that because in the what i enjoy about the the film too is that in in the special features they talked about the production um side of it and the the actual production design of it that they purposely had old artwork and like they wanted an old uh older type of environment where like even the bumper crop in the film like all all the toys and stuff were like old-fashioned porcelain um nothing that was things that were worn down and aged um to to control that environment to show that they are kind of generations behind it shows them that like they don't have a lot of information because everything that they're given is old stuff it's not new stuff yeah no, I, I agree there. And uh, overall, as far as the movie's concerned, obviously there's some, there's differences, but the, you made mention they captured it really well. And part of that is, you know, between Alex, who wrote it, um, certainly uh, Kathy, um, played by Carrie Mulligan, Fantastic. she was a long-time ten- uh, enthusiast of the book. And so there's just this uh, love that really went into it. 
um, towards the project. And, and uh, when you have that sort of side of it, it translates really well. Yeah, and I think it's always great when you cast people who really know the story and who is an actual true fan because that will translate authentically over to their performance. And um, there are interviews out there. Um, and Mulligan says, like, I've read the book um, when it first came out and I was such a fan and she won't, she wanted to do anything to be a part of this film. Well, what I also appreciate, right, um, to the authenticity of it, um, the most challenging part was the part where um, you had the kid actors playing the roles of Kathy, uh, Tommy, and Ruth. And so to sort of prep for that, they had um, the main actors, Kira Knightley, Carrie Mulligan, and Andrew Garfield, they had them act those scenes first. One, so they could sort of ingrain, like, hey, how would a seasoned actor play these scenes for the kids that would play them? But secondly, for those actors, they had now the memory of that moment for when they actually played their older selves. So it's an interesting technique. I like that because when they have the real-life memories, that translates into their acting because they can reflect on something that actually happened in their lives. And I think that's so smart if you really want a genuine performance out of people. Yeah, and it worked, it worked really well. It got, obviously, the result is on screen. Um, they even did a little mix and match. Let's say, like, uh, you know, you had Andrew play with uh, young, you know, Kathy or young Kathy play with old Tommy, you know? Mm -hmm. It's it's fun. I like that. And I think the casting of the children were very well done compared to, like, the physical look and um, their manners. And sometimes you you see those movies where the kids look nothing like their older counterparts. And that can take a viewer out of a film be like, okay, I can believe it, you know, suspend that disbelief. But I think the casting was very well done for the children and the and the adults. Absolutely, a hundred percent. I I concur. Um, what are the, some of the things you thought the movie absolutely nailed um, in terms of the book, and what are some of the things that you thought you know what you wished you got to see on screen that perhaps wasn't there or just wasn't communicated in the best of way? Um, I really enjoyed the the friendship dynamic. You, you saw a little bit of it when they were kids because in the book, it took them, actually, it took them a while to all finally start talking to each other on a regular basis. There were times where they would avoid each other or only interact once or twice throughout you know the years through Hailsham. But in the movie, it's established right away that they knew each other, that they were already friends, X, Y, and Z. Um, but in the movie, it's so... You can be- it's so believable so that you can believe that once they grew up as young adults as adults that they still kept that relationship going um, even though it had you know its ups and downs I thought the relationship was very consistent and uh, true to what the story was of the book uh, what, what I appreciated that there was um, and I, have, I forget um, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but um, obviously there's a large part of the book that's spent talking about just sex. And uh, I, I believe she pretty much like outright says, like, I know it makes it seem like I just watch porn and I like this is a porno. <laughs> um, and I, I was wondering how they were going to translate all of that into the movie. And I thought they actually did it quite delicately because it could have turned into a porno. No, it's true because I think in the book, again, they didn't have a lot of information about life situations and sex is a big thing. And I think 
while you're writing, like, while probably Ishiguro is writing it out, like, how would Kathy explain what sex is? How does she explain her understanding of what sex is? And how do other people think of what sex is? Because sex can mean a lot of different things with people. And I think they touched upon it very well in the movie. Not so much, but to the point where they understand as adults what it is and, like, what it means to people. Um, But I think that the written word in the book is just people's... Uh, you know how a lot of people just like write things out just to understand something better, and I think that was Kathy's thought train, her memory train of what and how she viewed sex. Yeah, one of the things I was looking forward to most was the was the part where you know they're trying to get the furl, and I thought as far as any scenes like that, that was the scene I was most looking forward to because that was the make or break scene. And I thought they did that really well, both everything, music, lighting, cinematography, acting, production design, editing, editing you name it. Yeah. They, uh, that, that worked really well. Yeah, I think the deferral scene is one of the best scenes in the film, and also the performance that follows afterwards with um, Andrew Garfield. But because in the book, that is the climactic scene. That is where you get all your exposition and all your answers to everything that's going on. And it's that that brick wall of realization of, and the sadness after all of it, knowing that they're not going to be able to ever get these deferrals. Um, and that sad realization that they're still going to die, unfortunately. They, like, they had that false hope of something, and it was taken away in a blink of an eye, which is sad. Well, they, well... I want to, you know, for, for, I'm going to shift it just a little bit because they never existed. You yeah. know, so it's not like it was taken. It's just they never existed. And uh, so when you talk about the human condition, yeah, there's no deferral that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. We all speculate and so forth. But, But you it's know. not there. And um, it's also disappointing, too, because you, you now know their, their doomed fate and while you're reading these deferrals, as a reader, you, you kind of want that deferral. You kind of want that semblance of hope for them because they, they don't get to choose their fate. Um, the, such as Madam says, the, you have to live the life in the path that was laid out for you. And you're like, oh, that's such a sad life. And you just want, as a human, you should want something good for these people They're, who are trying to change their future, who are trying to change their fate just a little bit. Yes. Here's um it's not directly correlated, but I thought um in light of like the themes, this is an actually interesting quote. Um have you ever heard of Susan Sontag? Photo- mm. uh poet and photographer. Yes, yeah, sounds familiar. Very renowned. Um so I think it, it applies. Um hopefully you enjoy it as well. Illness is the night side of life. Um a more um wondrous citizen. Um Everyone who is born holds dual citizenship in the kingdom of the well and in the kingdom of the sick. Although we all prefer to use the good passport, sooner or later each of us is obligated at least for a spell to identify ourselves as citizen of that other place. And so, yeah, when it comes to deferrals, (laughs) you know, you, you don't get that. Yeah. It just is what it is. It is what it is. And I think they, they did that also very well just in the acting because there is that moment where the camera is just on Kathy and Tommy while them sitting there 
like getting the sad realization like oh there's 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 nothing for them and that moment it hits them as actors you're like oh crap <laughs> you know I, I think it was just so well done because they said so much without saying anything at all yeah. uh, and, and you know they did because you know Andrew's so excited um, as Tommy and Carrie as Kathy is just so stoic and she knows that she knows what's happening from basically sentence one and you know it's almost like uh you know she just yeah they 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 couldn't almost continue the lie if you will mm-hmm. and, you know i was like no we have like here's what's happening I, I don't think you understand yeah there are no deferrals tommy yeah Oh, I mean, it's a great performance, and I think just visually it was um, shot very well, especially with the the following scene in the in the car, and I mean it's it's very dim lighting, but uh, because in in the book you see uh, Tommy have all these tantrums as a as a child, but as he grows up and matures, like he can learn how to control it, and he goes for most of the book without can um, without having tantrums until it literally builds to a point as an adult, having the sad realization taking away the deferrals from him that he like so wanted to believe in, um, breaking down. It's it's tragic to watch. It's and it's beautiful to read, but also it was tragic and beautiful to watch on the screen. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. Um, as far as the portrayals, um, I thought overall uh, everyone matched their character well. Uh, I I couldn't think of anyone that didn't fit the character. Like I bought everyone, even the both young and old. Um, as far as the characters and and Carrie Mulligan and you know I thought she in particular rose to the occasion. Absolutely, I loved every single one of them for their own um, different characteristics. Ruth, I, I think Kira Knightley did a great job of being that manipulative type of insecure person who might do that and like um, betray her friends in a little way, um, say certain things that would like. Um, ruined the friendship. I think uh, Kira was fantastic at playing the manipulative, conniving, insecure person. Carrie, I think, was so solid and consistent throughout, um, especially with the character Kathy. You saw moments where she was strong, but also moments of vulnerability. But she, yet she was still the solid rock for everybody because she is a carer. Her her job is to take care of other people before she took care of herself. And that's what's also... Um, you felt for her when... When bad things were happening to her, people were saying things to her. You just wanted to reach out and give her a hug. And then I think Tommy did a great job of um, playing that ignorance part because I felt Tommy was the most ignorant out of everybody. Um, And when I say ignorant, like he he was so naive um, that it's it's not really cute. It's it's kind of sad of like how much he doesn't realize what's actually happening. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it, yeah, again, I can't, can't give him enough credit. Um, and and Keira, like with with Ruth, Kira Knightley has a sweet sort of voice in particular. So uh, she could say the meanest of things, and it'll still sound quite adorable. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely has that uh, you know edge to her. Yeah, I, I mean, I like her, and I think she's great. I mean, she she's a fantastic 
actress, and she's been, you know, nominated for Academy Awards. They've all been nominated um, for Academy Awards, and uh, so that's a testament to their actual acting abilities. And they were at the start of their, well, maybe not Kira, but certainly Andrew and Carrie, they, they weren't uh, what they are today. Yeah, certainly. Um, and and they're all amazing, the, and even all the other um, characters that they portray in other films and productions, uh, like, they're just so good and so seasoned um, at such a fairly younger age. Um, I applaud each and every one of them because if, and I, I wouldn't recast these roles to anybody, no. honestly. And it's interesting how they sort of walk away and have a different take on everything. So Andrew, for example, is, thinks the movie is, what what is it to have a soul and how do you prove you have a soul? Um, it's a call to arms about the positives of life. Kira, on the other hand, says um, it's more about humanity's ability to look away. <laughs> so uh, certainly each one of them walks out from a, with a different perspective on what the ultimate message of the movie is. Right. And like what the ultimate message of what the galley really represented. Yeah. Um, I thought that reading it and watching it for the first time was probably the biggest thing uh, as, as a viewer, as the fan of the story hit me the most was like the whole purpose of the gallery. Um, you think it's for something good, but also the meaning behind it is it's just to prove if you were actually human, if you weren't just a genetic um, makeup for something, if you actually had a purpose in life and you had like a soul that represented that you're a good person, yeah. even at the end of the day, you're going to ultimately die. But we still need to know if you were just a good human being. And it was that, and that's what makes Tommy's, I'll call it a confession, so heartbreaking is because at first he believes that like he has all of this regret in life, you know, that, that Kathy should have been the one he was always supposed to be with. He found her later in life. He now wants to make amends and he's, you know, willing to do whatever it takes. He, he understands that he made a mistake and he truly believes that this can fix it and no unfortunately kind of it's not that part of it yes you have to live with your consequences Mm -hmm. part of it is there was no obviously like it's it's non-existent yeah it's non-existent a little too late but at least he i mean it's better late than never kind of yeah i mean that yeah that's so the i i think certainly when he screams and you know he has that the ultimate realization is Wow, I've you know the sh- the little of my life I I have had I wasted, mm-hmm. and you know uh, there's a great Bukowski poem that says you know um, there's worse things than being alone, um, but sometimes it takes decades to find them, and there's and by then it's too late, and there's nothing worse than too late. Yeah, that's what he and realized in that moment. Was, yeah, that that too late again. It shows like just how naive he was throughout the entire book. He's an adult now, realizing what his ultimate fate is and what he could have done as a child, as a young adult. Like that. That's the moment where it's like, uh, what did I do with my entire life? A hundred percent. By the way, I'd be very curious to get the perspective of you fans at home reading watching listening whatever it is uh let us know your thoughts on this um especially with a book like this uh it has such deep meanings and so what is your interpretation i would love to know 
you know, Marissa and I do this not with the intention to blanket it and make it at the end all be all. No, it's to open up a dialogue. Mm-hmm. This is the start of something, not the end of something. Right. And I think the, and sometimes, you know, film adaptations aren't as great as the book. Right? And then in rare cases, the book's better than the film. Uh, I, I felt like this, the, admittedly, I saw the film first before I even knew about who Ishiguro was, that um, he was a well-known author. And, and I read, I loved the film so much that I watched it over and over again until I finally bought the book. And then I loved the book even more, now more delving into the, the, the humanistic aspect of how they thought as children. Because you see how they act as children in the movie. But in the book, you, you read how they thought as children. And I loved it because it's one of those things, like, if you love a film so much, the book could ruin it for you. Or conversely, um, I love both of these things so much. I read I bought this book twice. That's how much I loved it. Um, I have one. Once in, would have been enough, but that's okay. Yeah, well, like, in fairness, I have one copy in Illinois, and I have one here now. But it's so good that it... And reading it the second time... More as an adult, because now I think it hits more closely now, because I am the age of them as donors. And it makes me kind of reflect on my life. What am I doing at such a young age? You're not complete yet. Yeah, am I living to my full potential? You know, like, it's one of those stories that's thought-provoking that makes you realize, like, how do you live your life if you know you're destined to do something? I don't have an answer to that question. Exactly. Exactly. It's fun of those stories. Um, any other things you want to share before we uh, wrap wrap out? I loved the music to the film. I think music, we, we've talked about it in our other shows, Anatomy of a Movie, where music can really complement a story very well. Um, I think Rachel Portman did a fantastic job. You, and you hear, you heard it at the beginning of this. And it's just so hauntingly beautiful. And it fits tonally with the the sad melancholy theme of what the overall story is. Uh, it's it's just hauntingly beautiful, I think is the only words I can think for it. There you go. Um, I agree. Uh, really wonderful book, really wonderful movie, has a lot of awards um, book-wise. Um, movie, unfortunately, didn't get as much recognition as the book. Um, I hope that in time it, it, it can grow in popularity and sort of be one of, I don't want to, cult is, can be deemed a negative word, so I don't want to call it a cult favorite, but it, but it, it, it grows right. in time. And it was one of those films that was released, I, I want to believe, like, it, it was 2010, because I was in college when I first watched and read the book, and uh, it, it was released at a different time of the year where, like, I don't feel like a lot of people were watching the film. I watched it at the end of the year, during the winter, Um but it, it just like it, there wasn't a lot of marketing on it. There wasn't a lot of traction. We have big names, uh, you know, and even back in 2010, like uh, Keira Knightley and Carrie Mulligan are very already well established. And, and Andrew was it's tough was to growing. market this book. It, I mean, it is. It's because uh, like, you can't say they're clones because then you kind of give away the secret. Yeah, can you say it's sci-fi? Can you say it's romance? Can you say it's drama? It's. Mm-hmm. I feel like this book can touches on a lot of different um, 
genres and a lot of different demographics too. That's that's uh, one of the things I, I hate about modern society is that if it's not marketable, it beca- like I, I just hate the fact that it has to be marketable in order to actually get out there because yeah, some of the you know certainly there's plenty of examples that aren't marketable that make up the best. I'll just call it art, all all encompassing, whether music, books, movies, whatever. Everything. Um, so there you have it. All right. Uh, so there's our discussion of Never Let Me Go. Unfortunately, we do have to let you go. However, a couple of things before we head off. Uh, number one, Stardust by Neil Gaiman is going to be the next book slash movie that we do. Yes. So definitely looking forward to that. Um, if you haven't seen the movie, a lot of fun. It's it's, it's very whimsical. That's a good word for it. Whimsical. It is. Um, it's fun. And uh, the book, um, I've read it quite a bit ago. Um, enjoyable as well, from what I remember. So um, they pair it together well. Definitely a lot of different uh, differences there, but we'll talk about those. Um, furthermore, as I mentioned, you can download the rundown in our descriptions. In the meantime, where can people chat with you yes um you can follow me on twitter at serifini tv and thirdly we would re- we would be remiss if we didn't mention that kazu ishiguro actually at the beginning of october of 2017 putting timestamp uh he won the Nobel prize for literature so he is a very well so um, we're timeless he's a laurel you guys um he's a great writer and he's been recognized as a great writer absolutely uh, Nobel Prize is a humongous honor. Um, here's what's interesting about the Nobel Prize. It's not only your achievements. That's not that's half of the equation. You have to also contribute to other people's works. <laughs> and uh, I think that's a very positive message, um, which I appreciate about the Nobel Prize. Because, again, it's not enough just to do your own thing. You yes. have to help. To help. Um, which is quite in keeping with this book as well in terms of the themes uh anyway at seraphini tv her and i host a show called Mo- uh, anatomy of movie over on popcorntalk.com check that out um we have a lot of fun so if you like movies which i assume you kind of do because you're <laughs> listening to this which is books two movies um you know you'll appreciate that uh as far as anything else i'm phil svitek Go to my website, philsvitek.com. You'll find all my social media there. It's just my name, Phil Svitek. Uh, thank you, as always. Um, and uh, if you have recommendations for books, if you have any questions and so forth, please don't be afraid. Comment. Uh, we love conversing. Thank you, guys. And we'll see you next time for Adapted here on Book Circle Online. From executive producers Kevin Undergaro, Maria Menunos, and Jeffrey Masters, thanks for tuning in to Book Circle Online. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a comment. To suggest a book title or their author, you can tweet us at BookCircleOn. This is Book Circle Online. Thanks for tuning in.